my son, Lincoln, built this pretty nifty tree house this week. Um, the scribbles along the side, I think, are compliments of his baby sister, but that's, that's for a different sermon. Um, uh, he, he put this together, and it's pretty impressive. I mean, it's not quite as impressive as you might think because this is a prefabricated birdhouse, um, and all these pieces are pre-cut, and really all you have to do is assemble it and kind of put it together. But I still think it's fairly impressive uh, for a seven-year-old to do. When he first put it together, this, this was given to him by his grandmother who was here visiting. Um, my mother-in-law is here with us, and I'm her favorite son-in-law, so it's nice to have you here with us today, Rita. I'm her only son-in-law, but still. And um, so she, she gave him this, this, this uh, birdhouse. He put it together, and he brought it into the kitchen to show everyone, and, and immediately we're all like, oh, that's, that's great, you know? So I took it, and I started looking at it, and I realized that he had missed one little step in the instructions. He, like his father, sometimes doesn't read the instructions. He just kind of wings it. So uh, he had skipped one step, and he had skipped the step of adhering the, the birdhouse together with the glue that was provided in the kit. So he had pressed everything together in the little slots that they have for it and the little holes that they have for it, but it wasn't glued together. And what I told him, I said, you know, Lincoln, this... this this birdhouse looks good, but if we hang this up and the, the wind starts to come or the rain starts to fall, this little, this little birdhouse is not going to stay together. It's going to fall apart unless we put some glue to it and adhere it together with the glue. So we had to very gingerly pull the pieces apart, put the little beads of glue on there, and press it back in together so that this thing will withstand the rain and the storms and the wind that will inevitably come upon it. Today we are in part two of our sermon series, Build Better, Fill in the Blank. And what we're exploring is how do we build better relationships? How do we build better environments? How do we build better churches? How do we build a better city? How do we build a better world according to God's truths, according to the principles of God's word? How do we build better blank? And so today what we're going to look at is the glue that adheres our relationships together. We're going to explore what is, what is, the, what is the adhesive property that keeps relationships working, that allows churches and governments and cities and, and, and companies and families to flourish. What is that glue? And the glue for all human relationships, and we know this in our own life, is trust. When we trust one another, we can flourish. But any relationship that lacks trust will fall apart. It will erode like a, like, a, like a birdhouse in the rain that's not glued together. It will simply fall apart. Some of you have experienced this in your own life. You've been in a, a friendship or a relationship where trust was breached, and when the, the trust was gone, the relationship began to fall apart. In fact, you can trace back any kind of uh, a relationship or experience that you've had where there's been... Um, you know, a dissolution of the, of, the, of the relationship, you can trace all of those back to the loss of trust. A friendship that falls apart can be traced back to the moment where you stop believing that that person had your back. You stop believing that that person had your best interest in mind. A marriage can begin to fall apart the moment somebody doesn't trust somebody else. 
a, a, a job, a corporation, a church, a nonprofit, a city, a, a, a country can fall apart when people stop trusting each other. Trust is the glue that binds people together. It adheres us together. And when we have trust, it's exponential what we can do. What we can do together is exponentially greater than what we can do separately. I don't know if you've ever been to the Circus Flora or any circus for that matter, but we took our kids to Circus Flora not that long ago. And what was impressive to me were the, the, the trapeze uh, flyers and not so much their physical prowess, which was also impressive. I mean, these people are incredible athletes. But what really impressed me is that they're flying through the air and somebody's on the other trapeze and they're catching one another in midair. The level of trust that they have to have to make this thing work is mind-boggling. It just blows my mind. In fact, at one point, they had a, a whole family up on the, the tightrope, and they had the grandpa on a bicycle, and then they had somebody on grandpa's shoulders, and then a little kid up on that person's shoulders, and grandpa is bicycling across the tightrope, and I'm like, I'm I'm like, I can barely watch, right? I don't have that level of trust in grandpa, but they did. They said, hey, you know, and he was amazing. I mean, this guy, you got to go check him out. I mean, it was just, it was mind-blowing. But all of that requires a deep, deep level of trust. When we have trust in one another, when we work together, we are exponentially better than when we work apart. We are greater union between people makes all of us greater than the sum of our parts in fact the scripture puts it like this it says two are better than one because if either of them falls down one can help the other up though one may be overpowered two can defend themselves and then it says this a cord of three strands is not easily broken it's saying when we are together, when we have trust with one another, when we're relying on each other, when we're, when we're working together, it's hard to stop people that work together. It's difficult to stop people that are, that are together towards a common a purpose, a common mission, a common cause. It's really, really, in fact, the psalmist puts it like this. It says, how good and how pleasant it is when brothers dwell together in unity. So, you and I, from our own experience in life, we know that our lives are exponentially better when we're working together in trusting, loving, real, genuine relationships. The scripture affirms that it's just, it's better when we're together. But the problem is, we're human beings. And human beings, I don't know if you've noticed this, have a tendency to disappoint one another. Especially the, the closer you get, the more trust is required, the more likelihood or the more possi possibility there is that we will say something or we will do something or we will harbor an attitude or a feeling or a view or a, or a mindset that undermines the trust in the relationship. It's very, very difficult to have deep relationships with people without at some point offending someone. And trust can be eroded. So how do we how do we maintain trust? How do we build trust when the human tendency for all of us is to do things, say things, think things that have a tendency to undermine that trust? How do we build trust in, in those situations? And so today, I want to just press in on one idea, one basic truth about trust. And if you don't get anything else from today's sermon, get this. The seeds of trust grow only 
in the soil of truth. The seeds of trust between two people in a relationship, in a church, in a family, in a government, in a, in a company, the seeds of trust grow only in the soil of truth. It's only when we're candid with each other. It's only when we're real with each other. It's only when we're honest with each other and authentic with each other that seeds of trust can grow. And speaking truth to one another is really easy when things are going well. Have you noticed that? When things are going really well, it's like, yeah, you can be truthful. But it's when things are not going well that it's hard to be truthful, but it's exactly in that moment that truth is most imperative. Because the degree of the trust that you have with one another is contingent upon the depth of the truth that you're willing to speak to one another. So how do we press in and speak truth to one another, and this is in your family or your relationship or your job or your church or your team, wherever it is. How do we do that when things are not that easy, when things are not going well? It begins with recognition. We, we, we must be willing to recognize that which is wrong in order to make it right. We cannot make things right unless we're willing to recognize and acknowledge what is wrong. I used to have a boss years ago who shall remain anonymous and unnamed. But my boss was a guy that could not be wrong. He just refused to ever allow anyone to believe that he was wrong. And I think, I don't know why, I don't know if that was part, if he was just, you know, uh, if he wasn't confident or if he thought he would lose face or if he thought that, you know, we wouldn't respect him. But it actually had the counter effect to his desire because his refusal to admit when he was wrong, his refusal to recognize the moments that he was wrong created a great distrust in our, in our team. It created a great distrust in that entire department because if something went wrong, he would tend to figure out who he could point the finger at and point the finger at them and in that environment, you knew you could not point the finger back up at the boss. And it just wasn't done in that environment. Because if you did, it wouldn't go well for you. So what people would do is if he wrongly pointed the finger at them, then they would wrongly point the finger at somebody else. And pretty soon, distrust in this program became so toxic. The relationship became so unbearable. People quit the program. People left the department. Talented, bright people just couldn't put up with it. I remember there was one person, at least that I know of, who became physically ill because of the stress in this toxic relationship, all because somebody was unwilling to recognize the truth. If this boss had just at one point, just one time said, hey, you know what, guys? My bad. I did. That was my bad. I, I messed that one up. Just recognized that he had done something wrong. It would have created so much. I mean, we would have thrown a party. I mean, it would have been like it would have been, it would have changed the, the entire dynamic of that program. Sometimes it's not recognizing your own. Sometimes it is. Sometimes it's recognizing a harm that was done to somebody else and being willing to recognize a deep harm or a deep wrong that has been committed. I read an article I found very moving this week in Christianity Today, and it was an interview with a woman named Rachel Denhollander. She was one of the gymnasts who had been sexually abused by the, by the doctor at University of Michigan. And, uh, and there were hundreds of young women who had been sexually abused by this guy. And, and what added additional pain 
to Rachel Denhollander's life is that when she revealed what had happened to her, the people around her refused to recognize it. They either minimized it or they wouldn't believe her or they, you know, well-intended basically said, hey, you know what, forgive and move on. And for years, 16 years, this thing went unrecognized. It went unacknowledged. There's this great pain that she's carrying around due to a great evil that was done to her, and nobody would recognize it. And she said that even in her church community at that time, uh, it, was, it, it, it had gone unrecognized. And the, in fact, the quote that caught my attention, she said that, that for her experience, her church was the least safe place to go with this pain that had been wrought upon her by the evil that had been perpetrated against her. And she, she said something in this interview that I just found powerful on this idea. She said, one of the areas where Christians don't do well is in acknowledging the devastation of the wound, recognizing it. We can tend to gloss over the devastation of any kind of suffering, but especially sexual assault, she said, with Christian platitudes like God works all things together for good, or God is sovereign. Those are very good and glorious biblical truths, but when they are misapplied in a way to dampen the horror of evil, they ultimately dampen the goodness of God. Goodness and darkness exist as opposites, and if we pretend that the darkness isn't dark, it dampens the beauty of the light. Sometimes we have to recognize the pain. Sometimes we have to take the bandage off the wound and recognize the evil, recognize the hurt, recognize the harm that has been done because it's only after being recognized that it can begin to heal. Jesus put it like this. He said, you are the light. You are the light of the world. He's talking to us. He says, a, a, a town that's built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and it gives light to everybody in the house. He said, your role in life is to shed light because when light is spread, then darkness can't stand in the light. Injustice cannot stand in the light. Racism cannot stand against the light. Mistreatment of women and the, and, and the oppression of the poor cannot stand in the light. You are the light. We are the light of the world. And we, we only, if we hide it under a bushel, if we hide it under a basket, then the light cannot be seen. He said, take the bowl off. You're a light on a hill. Shine. Shine the light of God's love. Let it reflect everywhere because that's the only way the darkness can be cast out is when we are willing to open up and recognize what God has made us into. It's not enough, however, to simply recognize the wrong. We can't just recognize the wrong. If we stop there, we haven't done enough. Recognition has to lead to repentance. If we're really going to ultimately heal, if we're really going to restore relationships, recognition of the wrong is not sufficient. It's necessary, but it's not sufficient. It does not get us all the way. Repentance is required. Now, when I say repentance, people have all kinds of ideas about repentance. And, and I'm not talking about sort of like weepy sentimentality or just, you know, guilt-ridden strife. I'm talking about a transmutation of somebody's mind, a transformation, a turning around. R repent, the Greek word metanoeo, we discussed this a few weeks ago. It means, uh, meta means change, and noeo means mind. I mean, literally, it means to change your mind. It means to turn around. It's not enough just to recognize, it means you've got to do something about it. It means you've got to change things. 
Things, things get turned around when we repent. Things, th- injustice gets turned around, gets toppled. Bad things that are, that are going on in the world get turned around when people are willing to repent. Relationships can be restored when people are willing to repent. I came across a passage in the Bible this week that I'd never noticed. I've read it many times. I just never noticed it. It's, it's when Moses is trying to get Pharaoh to free his people from bondage, the bondage of slavery in Egypt. And, he's, and, and God is sending plagues upon Egypt and, and, and God is, is, is trying to get you know, uh, uh, Pharaoh to, to, to let his people go through Moses. And, and there's this moment where you go, oh, Pharaoh's getting it. Pharaoh's actually getting it. This passage that I never noticed says this in, in Exodus 9. It says, Pharaoh summoned Moses and Aaron. He said, guys, I need to talk to you. He said, this time I have sinned. The Lord is in the right. This is Pharaoh. The Lord is in the right, and I and my people are in the wrong. Pray to the Lord, for we have had enough thunder, and we've had enough hail, and I will let you go. You don't have to stay here any longer. You're going to go. You guys were right. I was wrong. Pray to God. Stop the storm, and I'll release the people. So Moses says, okay, this is a recognition of the wrong. This is a recognition. He's recognizing that he's wrong, and God's right, and he's going to do something about it. So Moses goes out. The scriptures say he prays to God. God, please stop the hail. Stop the storm right? God stops the hail, stops the storm, and then a couple verses down it says this, when Pharaoh saw that the rain and hail and thunder had stopped, he sinned again. He and his officials hardened their hearts, so Pharaoh's heart was hard, and he would not let the Israelites go. You see, he recognized the wrong, but he didn't really repent. He recognized that he was in the wrong, but he wouldn't really turn around. When we recognize what's wrong, but we don't repent, then we're rebelling. And it doesn't go well for us. Things start to fall apart. Relationships start to fall apart. The glue that adheres our lives together begins to fall apart when we aren't willing to address those things in our lives or in the lives of others or in our relationships that are wrong. In fact, Jesus' brother, James, put it like this. He says, if anybody knows the good that they ought to do and they don't do it, to them it is sin. It's not enough to just recognize. Once you know it, there's got to be a a transformation. There's got to be a turning. Uh, in Proverbs, it says this. Uh, one of my favorite Proverbs. He who conceals his transgression will not prosper. When we bury it, when we hide it, when we're unwilling to face the difficult truths of our lives or relationships or the world around us, we cannot prosper. But he who confesses and forsakes. It's not just confessions. Confession and forsakes them will find compassion. Today, some of us in our own lives, in our own hearts, or in our own relationships, or on our jobs, some of us have ideas or attitudes or we're harboring um, um, patterns of behavior that in our heart we go, this isn't right. This isn't right. I don't want to keep doing this. And we know it, and the light is there. We can see it, and God's saying, hey, I want you to turn this around. Can you do it on your own? No. But can I give you the power by the Holy Spirit, start transforming you? Yes, that's why I came. I came to change your identity and then to, to help you change your life in conformity with your identity. It's not that we're changing our life to get God's pleasure or to get, God, to, to get our identity aligned with God. God gives us a new identity. Scripture says he reconciles us to, it, to himself. 
He says, when we bring Christ into our life, behold, we become new. We become a new thing. It's just now a matter of recognizing the old stuff and, and, and repenting of it and starting to walk in the light and starting to walk in the Spirit. Because when we do that, when we're really genuinely willing to recognize the wrong in our own lives and in our relationships and in the lives of the people around us, and when we're genuinely willing to repent and turn for them, that's the only time we have the possibility of real reconciliation. When things are brought back together. When things are made right. That's when the house gets rebuilt. The pieces that have been pulled apart the relationships that are starting to unravel, the friendships that are starting to fall apart, the, the, the mistrust that has grown in the lives of people, it starts to get rebuilt when we, re, when we recognize and we repent. God starts to build it back together. Now, I don't want you to mishear me. There are, there are times in life and there are relationships in life that are not to be reconciled outside of some miracle from God. God can do anything. But there are some relationships that they've just gotten so toxic, they've broken down so badly that it, 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 there's been so much harm done that reconciliation is just not, outside of a miracle, just not possible in our own, in our own flesh and, and, and maybe not even desirable. But for many of us, there are relationships even right now, friendships right now, marriages right now, families right now, that are strained, that are being pulled apart, that are coming loose because of the storms and the rain and the wind. And God's saying, it's not too late to turn that around. I can reconcile your life. I can reconcile that relationship. I can reconcile that family. But, but you've got to be willing to confess it. James in chapter 5 says this, Confess your faults one to, not, one to another and pray for one another that you may be healed. See, God is calling us to be not only healed ourselves, but to become a source of healing in the lives of other people. That's, that's what the church is about. It's about becoming a place where people who are broken and fractured and wounded can come and find strength and find healing, and their lives can be brought back together. Their lives can be built better. Their relationships can be built better because they're grounded in the truth. Jesus, it turns out, reconciles the world to us, or to himself, so that we can be reconcilers of others. He says, he, the scripture says, through Jesus' death, he reconciles the world to himself. That means he cleanses our hearts. He liberates us to bring us into a reconciled relationship with him. But then as a result of that, we become, he says, ambassadors of reconciliation. He uses us to, to become emissaries of peace, to become envoys of justice, to become ministers of truth and hope and reconciliation. And when we become that, when we become that, not just individually, collectively, when we become that, the broken and the hurting and the, and the, and the frightened and the wounded pour through these doors because God heals them here. He 
He heals them here. He heals their hearts. He heals their minds. He heals their relationships. That's what he's done with us. So many of us have been healed by the power of the truth of the gospel. And God says, look, I do that for you, and then I do that so that you can join me in doing that. You become my partner in reconciling the world to God. And so I say that as we press into God's truth and as we seek to build better lives, better relationships, better homes, we seek to build trust through truth, what we'll find is that we will be a, 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 a firm foundation. We'll be a, a light on the hill. We'll be a, a, a house that is built on the rock that people can pour into. And we'll start to see little, little seeds of trust blossom and bloom because they are planted in the soil of truth. Let me pray for us today. Father, your word is so, so powerful and so, so probing into our hearts. We know there are things that you are speaking even right now into people's hearts that I haven't said. You're saying it. By the power of your Holy Spirit, you're speaking into our hearts with your word, revealing things in our own hearts and our own lives that need to be revealed, that need to be recognized and acknowledged. God, I pray that you give us strength individually and collectively to repent of those things where we have either ignored or denied or maybe even with good intentions um, avoided speaking truth into people's lives and into our life. God, bring us to true repentance, not condemnation, not shame, but true freedom. You shall know the truth and the truth will make you free. Father, liberate us by the power of your word. Liberate every single person here today by the power of your word. Transform our hearts and our minds by the power of your truth so that we might partner with you in reaching out to this city and reaching out to this country and in spreading the truth of your gospel around this world, God, so that trust might grow, so that you might be honored, so that you might receive praise and that you might receive glory as a result of our efforts in pursuit of you by the power of your spirit that works within us. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.